Hello, I'm Sarah Rothbard, Editor-in-Chief of Zocalo Public Square, a creative unit of Arizona State University. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free, and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like this one. Find us at ZocaloPublicSquare.org and all the main podcast platforms. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, please like it, follow us, or subscribe. We're honored to partner with Issues in Science and Technology to present today's conversation featuring Lindy Elkins-Tanton of ASU and NASA. I'm looking forward to hearing Lindy discuss whether scientific research can break free of its competitive culture. And I'm thrilled to introduce Lisa Marginelli, Editor-in-Chief of Issues, who will be interviewing Lindy on this subject. Over to you, Lisa. Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, and by Arizona State University. And you can find us at issues.org online. We are delighted to partner with Zocalo to present today's conversation asking, is cutthroat science hindering discovery? Joining me today is Dr. Lindy Elkins-Tanton, who addresses that question in her recent essay for issues, which is linked underneath this video. In her article, she argues for a radical restructuring of the way we do research, divesting from big names and instead asking teams to focus on big questions and ambitious goals. She proposes a new way of doing research saying, the future of humankind requires that we hear all the voices at the table, not just the loudest. Lindy is the vice president of the ASU Interplanetary Initiative. And she is the principal investigator of the NASA Psyche mission, which launches in 2022 to explore a unique metallic asteroid orbiting the sun between Mars and Jupiter. She's known for her research into the evolution of rocky planets, as well as for her work on pioneering new ways to educate young scientists and engineers. Lindy, thank you so much for joining with us today. To start off, to start off, I'd like to ask you um, how you got interested in science. Was there some sort of ideal picture of what a scientist was? Huh, that's a great question. Thanks, Lisa. It's really great to be here to talk about this. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Um, you know, I. I often ask when I give a public lecture, uh, especially to people interested in astronomy and planetary science, what was the moment in your life when you knew that you wanted to do this or be interested in this or follow this? It's like the question you just asked me. And almost probably a third of the audience always says it was when they saw Jupiter or Saturn through a telescope when they were 10 or 11 or 12. It's just this formative moment. For the rest, it's mostly uh, uh, Carl Sagan, Cosmos, Star Trek, Star Wars, and NASA. And I had all those things, including the Jupiter and Saturn sighting when I was about that age, um, but I still wanted to be a veterinarian. So I, I had this tremendous, like, like all-consuming interest in natural sciences. Uh, that carried me across, you know, all the disciplines. And even though as an undergraduate, I studied science, I was not quite ready to go to graduate school. And so for me, it's been um, not a real direct path into science, but instead a real passion that grew largely in the decade after my undergraduate degree in how teams of people work together. And what is it that makes for not just a good outcome for the project, but a good outcome for the person? And when I went back for my doctorate, which Can I, I did ask you, what was your first degree in? It was uh, it was in geology, and then I did a master's simultaneously in geochemistry. Um, and then I went and worked in management consulting and in the magazine industry for uh, for almost ten years. And then I came back for my doctorate when I was thirty one. So it was a little bit of an unusual path. Wow. But the thing that made me come back was the knowledge that in research science the questions can be as challenging as you want. 
You never need get bored. You can always challenge yourself to a further, a greater question. And it came along with the beautiful opportunity to teach. And those are the things that drove me back to science. And so I've had multiple, multiple drives all along. It's really interesting. I, that's a very unusual path, especially to you know where you're working now. Yeah. When, I want to know when did you realize that science was cutthroat? <laughs> yeah, you know, I feel like that is an education that most of us get, as I got during our PhDs. Uh, and some people are clever enough to kind of cotton on to this a little sooner, but for the rest of us, there's really a bit of a professional education during our PhDs where we learn that we need to stand up and fight for our ideas. Um, and we, and we shed that sort of sweet, naive notion that if I do a fantastic study that gives us new insight into the world around us and I publish it and it's peer reviewed, then there it is. People will understand it and they will adopt it and it will change human thought. And, and very quickly, you begin to realize that that's not enough. You can publish a brilliant piece of work, but unless you go out on the conference circuit and give talks and, and engage with other people and have what can be heated conversations and you're determined, your, your information doesn't really spread. And so, and so it's little, little epiphanies like that that begin to help us understand what the culture really is. Do you, did you have a particular epiphany about what the culture really was where you realized really like, oh, this is really, really highly competitive? There wasn't a particular, not one specific epiphany, but uh, I was at MIT for my PhD, um, a place that I love and have huge loyalty for, but which is also absolutely a series of warring city-states among the, the faculty. Uh -huh. um, in terms of uh, people really are fighting for um, their name, you know, for their and their results to be known and not to be dismissed and not to be disrespected, but instead to be adopted by the field and seen for what it is. And um, I got the feeling while I was there and also a little bit later in my career that talking about things like the culture of the laboratory wasn't welcome. Mm -hmm. that you shouldn't be talking about. And again, you know, this was around 2000. So it's only 20 years ago. It's not totally ancient history. Um, right. uh, so but got the feeling that that talking about things like um, let's definitely take turns speaking at team at, at, at meeting and and maybe when you criticize someone else's work, you could go about it in a more supportive way uh, that those were thought to be um, really for people who were too weak to make it in the real way. And that if you were really meant to be a serious top-notch research scientist, you didn't need to worry about those kinds of things because you're ready to play hardball. And it took me, uh, oh, about 15 years to figure out what the rebuttal to that was. It took a long time. <laughs> All right, I wanna move to that in a second, uh, to your rebuttal. I mean, it's, I think it's so interesting because many of us have a really heroic ideal of scientists from movies, from the books that we read from just from our culture, we actually have this idea, we see them as explorers, visionaries, people who solve problems, moral exemplars, the whole, you know, the whole bit. And we don't really like to think of them as competitive, cutthroat, potentially underhanded, undermining, <laughs> um, loud, maybe mean. Um, but <laughs> what? let's talk about this thing that started happening after you'd been in the field for 15 years and you started to look closer at, at what was going on around you. 
you saw something wrong and you called it the hero model. And what, what did you see? Yeah, to, to address exactly these words that you're using, I think a lot of scientists are adventurers and explorers and visionaries. And I think a lot of scientists are truly driving forward human knowledge. I mean, that's what science is about. It's a way to apprehend the world around us and deepen human knowledge in a way that we hope eliminates or reduces our implicit and explicit bias about what we are observing. We're just trying to be better observers. Um, but if you think for a moment that science is a human endeavor, everything humans do is a human endeavor made up of humans with all of our faults and foibles and all of our inclinations. And uh, of course, there are people in science who want to be famous. And of course, there are people in science who want to be lauded as excellent and people who want to win awards. I, you know, I think it's true in every field of human endeavor. And in science, unfortunately, it does pull us a little bit away from the reason that we're there in the first place. And so I, uh, while I was a management consultant, that's when I had this sort of epiphany moment around what it can be to work together where it's not always each person wanting their own reputation to be the more famous. You know, it's not always each person trying to be so careful not to ask a question that might be viewed as stupid uh, or to show weakness. Um, instead, you could have a circumstance where everyone is working together to create an outcome which is more important than their personal fame. And so this was a moment uh, working with what was then Touche Ross Management Consulting in Philadelphia, and it's now Deloitte. And we were working with a client around an issue that the client had, a big client. And we started as a team envisioning how we could organize ourselves and the clients in such a way that we would have a better outcome. And we made up this construct in our heads and then we convinced everyone to do it. It sounds so simple, right? We all sat around and we thought of a way to change and then we discussed it and then it happened. That is not a science. Uh, and, and it was a it was an organizational change. It was how the team was going to be organized. It was going to be the actions that they were going to take and the outcomes that they were going to make. And that was in stark difference to the kind of science I was doing where you can't just imagine what the outcome is and then make it happen. You don't make it up in your head and then it becomes real. Suddenly I realized that in the human endeavor, that is what we do. We agree upon how we're gonna organize ourselves. We agree upon the culture we're going to take and we agree upon the outcomes we're trying to create and magic, it happens. And that was the reason we realized that in science, we could be doing these great outcomes. We could be creating this new knowledge, but in a construct that was more human and inclusive and positive and effective and that we could make up that part of it. If I can just back up. I think that what happens is here is that a management consultant went to some of the fanciest labs in the country and said, why are they managed this way? Why are people interacting this way? I think that's what you're kind of saying. And I need you to give me a picture of how science labs are organized and why you called it hero science. Yeah, yeah. Let's go back to what was happening in 19th century Germany that was then carried forward largely uh, to other parts of Europe and to the United States. And I'm gonna give you what's a little bit of a caricature, but for anyone who's active in research science, I think you'll also absolutely recognize it. It's a circumstance where one professor is 
is the is the person who personifies their subdiscipline at that university. They own that field. They own that body of knowledge. They are the expert in it. And they also own a pyramid of resources. In extreme cases, that includes junior faculty hires along with you know, lab techs and staff to run their organization and graduate students and sometimes undergraduate interns, postdocs, and then budgets and equipment and access to that equipment. So there's a big pyramid of resources and on the top is the hero professor. And so, uh, you know, what could go wrong? <laughs> Wait, so they started this way back in Germany in what, the 15 or 1600s? This was the beginning of the German research? Yeah, and then it really got developed uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries when there was actually a recognition there that to become a leading faculty, you actually had to have charisma and fame. And that was part of your job was to stand yeah. up there and assert, I am the expert. Listen to me. You know, I'll use my, my deep convincing voice and I will never end my sentences with an upturn question inflection. And so, so there, was, there was this culture to create the hero. It was a purposeful culture. We wanted our senior faculty to stand up and be heroes. And now what we've done is we've imported that over here many, many years later, doing a completely different kind of science. We're not looking at ants and, and saying, where are their ovaries? We're, we're doing a completely <laughs> different kind of science um, that, that pervades our entire lives. Uh, and we still have funding, fame, students, education, discovery, equipment tied up to an individual. That's right. And so that has become, in effect, a management culture of science. Um, and then, so how did that model, which, you know, apparently worked for finding yeah. out where the ants' ovaries were, um, is now, how do we, you know, how is that turning research, how, how did that go adrift? How did that turn into competition? Why would you say that it's not part of a race for big ideas? Where, where is the hero model steering us wrong now? Where is it going wrong? Where is this going wrong? It did, it served us well for almost a millennium, didn't it? Um, uh, you know, alas, we're no longer Lord Kelvin. We can't any longer discover fundamental chemistry in our kitchen. Uh, and uh, it's very hard to make gigantic breakthroughs in individual subdisciplines unconnected to other subdisciplines. So there are many different ways that it can and has gone wrong and ways that it's still working really well too. There are, there are subdisciplines that are super fruitful in this model. But one problem is there is a, a limit to the resources that are available. And so people become um, very protective of their pyramid of resources. In some cases, this even means that they don't like their graduate students to spend time with other faculty or research in other labs because they want all of their time and attention in that one discipline on their thesis. Uh, so this kind of team culture that's, that's led entirely by one senior person, who I might add in general, has never had any leadership or management training or HR training of any kind. Uh, they come at it as purely as an individual scientist. Um, it can be rife for bullying and harassment. And often there's very little transparency to outsiders, other people in the organization and few uh, paths for help. And so this is something we've heard so much about since the Me Too movement began. There's been a big National Academy report. We know that there are problems with harassment and bullying in science 
science um, and engineering and STEM fields. And part of it is this, that there is not um, uh, a network of resources available for the people in the pyramid and their entire careers is de are dependent upon that senior person. So those are some of the ways it goes wrong. And I would just add that another really critical way it can go wrong is that uh, the senior scientist, the hero scientist is very motivated to protect their intellectual property and not have other people at their own institution or others who claim to have exactly the same or better expertise in that area. And so new discoveries tend to be in incremental slivers of real estate around that pyramid of resources and knowledge uh, up until they bump against another subdiscipline. So right away, that paradigm is something that has to be broken. We have to be welcome and rewarded for connecting outside of our pyramid. That's interesting. So you're saying there's two issues here. One is there's a set of incentives that drive people towards competitive behaviors, and there might be bullying, there might be harassment. I mean, I think Nature, in, uh, no, Science in 2017 published an article by two academics called Bullying is Real, which is you know, kind of a wild stage to have that realization. Um, it was shocked, kind of late. Um, and, the bullying could be real. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, there, there's also this problem with reproducing the science. I mean, in, in uh, yeah. Nature interviewed 1,500 scientists in 2016 and found that 70% of them said that they couldn't reproduce their colleagues' studies, which means that there's incentives in place to publish that do not incentivize also that being good reproducible research at, right. in any case. So there's a set of incentives for negative behaviors. Um, and then there's another set of incentives that are hampering progress or the, yes. similar, the same set of incentives are hampering progress on big questions. That's right, that's exactly right. So we would like the questions to be bigger and we'd like progress toward them to be faster. And we would also like the process to be more rewarding and inclusive for everyone who wants to participate. And, and here's really the bottom line to me, the absolute bottom line is that science is the best way that humans have ever invented to create lasting knowledge, knowledge that we don't immediately find out is wrong, uh, knowledge that we can actually make progress based upon. You know, it's the knowledge that gave us the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccinations. These are things that really matter. And this is a process that really matters. But of course, it's imperfect. It's imperfect because it's done by humans. And so it's not that science is either this perfect thing or we stop believing in it. It's that science is a human endeavor. And like every human endeavor, we can improve it. And so here are some ways, in fact, that we could make it better. We can, we can remove some of the things that make uh, harassment and bullying possible. We can create new connections, you know, so to speak to the first part of as, as you're describing this. Um, we can uh, reward scientists and other researchers for working across disciplines. And then how do we stretch out of the sub-discipline model? That's, that's the second part of it. How do we ask bigger questions? And that's what uh, I want, these are I want to, I think, just to improve, improve what we humans are trying to do. I, one of the things that came up in reading your story um, and talking to you is that while we're all kind of hung up on the hero model because it seems totally normal to us and it's a big part of our popular yeah. culture, in fact, there are places like NASA that don't use it. They have a different organizational model. Can you and can you can you explain to me like what these other models could be and, and kind of the models that you're thinking about? 
Yeah, I, let's consider a kind of an, an axis of models where on the one hand, we've got this hero model of the person sitting on top of their mountain and, and asserting that what they know is true. Uh, and so the, the, the um, product here is knowledge, but it is produced by a person, in fact, a personality, I would say, and that's what leads to the hero aspect. On the other end might be something where you're just focused on the product, where you really are looking at an outcome and the people are a way to create that outcome. And so a corporate setting is often a situation where that happens. Um, and any place where there's a project that's bigger than the individual. Um, and so that's what happens a lot of times with NASA missions and, uh, and which I, you know, I'm working on one right now and working on this mission really did lead to a lot of epiphanies for me about how things can work. This is not to say that NASA is without heroes in a lot of ways, NASA and all space exploration is all about heroes, but it doesn't have to be. Everything we do can be more inclusive, more voices heard, focused on the outcome. It doesn't have to be about making individual people more famous. So tell me a little bit about how you came to, you, you uh, work, there's a couple of things that you do. You, you, you're doing the Psyche mission. I think that has 800 people involved in it. So you obviously, I mean, your management training is a really big deal there, being able to think in terms of what do you do with 800 people? Um, but the other thing is, is that you're working with ASU's Interplanetary Initiative, and you're thinking about how to create learning environments at the same time. Because one of the issues is, is that the heroes are supposed to train students, and yeah. they do train students but there are a lot of other incentives involved in here, which may not end up with students who are really working for society, you know, are, are set to go to work for. So let's stop and talk just a little bit about heroes and students and then talk about kind of your approach. Um, sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks. Um, right. So, of course, faculty at universities and colleges teach classes to undergraduates. So that's one very important part of our purpose and our addition to society is, is teaching people not just content, but how to learn, teaching people to be learners, teaching people to have agency, teaching people to go out and be effective in the world and in their lives. And that takes on its most focused version when faculty are working with graduate students, students who are getting their masters or their PhDs, and they've really entered into that pyramid of resources because usually they're doing original research that is based upon an idea that the faculty member had. It's a faculty member's idea, usually not always. Uh, and the student's job is to carry it out and simultaneously to learn. It's an apprenticeship model. Mm -hmm. Now, apprenticeship models, when they're done well, totally brilliant. Then the students learn to be a, a top expert in their aspect of this subdiscipline, and they're supported by their faculty member who then write them supportive letters and help them get jobs and talk to their colleagues about how great they are and set them up for talks and do all the things that, that a dedicated mentor can do to help launch their career. Now, I don't need to say that is a lot of work and it takes a, um, a, a, some emotional intelligence as well as an intellectual and emotional commitment to the student. And so you can immediately see if you haven't experienced it yourself, how this can either 
be a beautiful, effective thing or a tremendous tragedy for the, for the student. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so yeah, so we're working in the interplanetary initiative at ASU, not just on different ways to put together teams for more rapid and effective outcomes and also more positive ones for the team members, but also on the education side. And I've been focusing a lot on undergraduates uh, because here's the divide that I've been seeing in education. Undergraduates in its, in its sort of pure end member state, they, they listen to lectures and read textbooks and give back the information on a test, which is incredibly passive. And we've known for decades that that is not the most effective way to learn, uh, but it's the way that we faculty think that undergraduates have to learn in order to get all the content that we need to cram into their heads during these four precious years that we have to influence what they know. But of course, we're now in the information age where all information is everywhere. So how about if we teach students instead the skills that they would otherwise have to wait to graduate school to learn? What if we teach them how to find information, decide upon its biases and its verity, and know what to do with that information, decide what outcomes they're looking for, and figure out how to do those outcomes? So in other words, how to be a master learner, someone who can actually execute with expertise, someone who can decide for themselves whether the answer is right or wrong. These things are not what's usually taught in undergraduate, and they lead graduate students to have existential crises because all the ways they'd been judged a good student in their lives, test scores, grades, sitting still and listening, are now no longer useful. In fact, they're the opposite of what a graduate student needs. A graduate student needs to think for themselves, find their own information, decide for themselves when it's right, decide how to take action. So we're trying to teach all those things as undergraduates. We're trying to give the agency and the voice to everyone in the pyramid, not just to the hero. Wow. Okay, so now let's talk a little bit about how the Interplanetary Initiative is trying to move away from the hero model into a different way of doing research. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this. And I wanna start with a little anecdote, which is that uh, for most of my life, I've been with my big brother, who's an art historian, about um, art and science and how they go together or don't go together. And very often people pose the idea that they're opposites in a lot of ways, completely unreconcilable, that you know they've been riven into since forever. And, and I just don't feel that way. I feel there are two ways that humans try to apprehend their world and express what they're learning. Um, and so people talk a lot about how do we bring together art and science. And what I've mainly seen happen from a scientist's point of view is there's, this, there's a hero scientist who has a research project running this research project, and an artist is like seconded onto their team, almost like a mascot who's going to follow them around, learn about this stuff and create some art. And I haven't seen many cases where that drove forward the science or the art. So I felt like that was an unsuccessful way to become interdisciplinary. Meanwhile, I start working on the Psyche mission um, at Jet Propulsion Laboratory and with our many other partners across the country and around the world. And as you say, with, at peak, we've had 800 people working on this team. And uh, I see meetings where in the room, we've got say uh, three engineers and a couple of scientists a graphic designer, a scheduler, a budgeter, somebody who is uh, you know, a photographer, and, and, and we're all working together and everyone is speaking and we're all creating these plans and these actions. And, and, it, and it really struck me like, this is such a different model for how people actually sit around a table, plan their actions, and then go off and produce a product. And the thing that I realized was that in this model, 
the goal that we're doing is exterior to ourselves. And everyone is there because they themselves and their specific knowledge is required to reach that goal. And mm -hmm. that's not the same thing as in a scientific lab when the one person has the idea. So the goal is almost internal to the leader and the other people are brought along maybe almost as observers in some cases. So at Interplanetary Initiative, we're trying to use this, this other model where we agree upon an external goal. It doesn't just come from one person who's the leader and the thought proposer. It comes from the whole group. We decide on an external goal. We assemble the team of disciplines that are required to reach that goal. And then everyone's there for a reason. Everyone's voice gets heard. Everyone's knowledge is necessary. And you immediately start with a much more equal and collaborative culture, uh, working toward a goal that everyone equally values. So that, that's the ideal, that's what we're trying to build. And when, when you do this, I mean, the culture I've been brought up in, which isn't even the culture of science says, well, you know, that's just much too squishy. You know, expertise has to be, you know, has to have some edges to it. And, and if you let everything in, you're no longer experts. So um, can you explain to me, like, Give me a really close up look of like, how do you come up with the questions and how do you compose the teams? Yes, right. So coming up with the questions, um, we've been experimenting with different processes and I'll describe to you the one that we're using right now that seems to be working pretty well. Uh, but I wanna start with a, like a little preamble, which might be a question of how do scientists and engineers decide the questions that they're pursuing? Mm -hmm. Do they actually start by saying to themselves, did I start when I was purely an academic scientist thinking to myself, what is the most important thing I could possibly solve with my time and effort here on earth? Generally not. Mm -hmm. Generally, I start with what is the next really cool question that could possibly be addressed with the tools that I have in my tool belt, um, which is a different question, which is a different way to come about your research. Now, it's not true for everyone. There are labs all over the world where people are saying the very most important thing I can solve with my knowledge in the world today is, is blah, blah, blah. And whatever it is, they're going for it. It's a really big, important goal. But a lot of us start with a little bit closer horizon. And so what we've been doing instead is gathering, we do something we call the big questions process, where we bring as many people as we can into a room. The first time we did it, it was 40 or 50 people from the university and from the community. And so I just gathered- all scientists? No, right. So I, so I just invited everyone I thought I could convince to come because it was such a kind of flyer experiment that I was running. This was in 2017. And we've, we've updated a little bit, but basically the process was I invited people I thought would come. I had some deans. Uh, I had somebody from business school, somebody from uh, um, public service. I had somebody from science. I had faculty uh, and then I had graduate students and even undergraduates and also some members of the general community outside the university who were just interested in what we're doing. So 40 or 50 people, very wide range of, of disciplines um, and very wide range of experiences. And we started with a really classic brainstorm, the kind of meaning, no criticism, meaning everyone's idea is received with a welcome. That's very important. So as not to cause people to shut up from pressure. And, and what we are trying to do is discover what the questions were that needed to be answered to create a positive human space future. 
what are the most important questions for us to answer to create a positive human space future? And people started thinking of ideas. Uh, uh, you know, one idea would be, um, how do we make sure that when we are settled on another body, when we become interplanetary on the moon or Mars, that humans have a structure to interact and we understand what we're going to be, when, you know, who's our governance, how are we going to relate to each other? So questions like that, all the way to uh, what is a faster propulsion system that will get us to Mars and, uh, or, or also how do we educate humans here on home, at, at home on Earth so that to be ready to be interplanetary. So many questions across mm -hmm. such a wide range of things. And, um, and so we wrote them all down. And, uh, and then after we were finished writing them down on the board, then uh, we voted on them. We talked about them a little bit, but we didn't want to get people into their critical mode. Uh, and we tried to keep them out of their critical mode and just into, you can silently inside decide which things are more valuable than another. And we ended up with a list of 10 actually quite profound and important questions. Uh, and then we gathered teams around them. And so, and so, but, so let me just back up. So you got these yeah. questions from talking amongst yourselves. You didn't go up to a big authority. You didn't ask the super experts in the room for theirs. You kind of drew them out of people and this kind of discussion. Right. We sure heard from the super experts in the room and we had super experts in the room, which is very, very helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, but we did not want the super experts in the room to be shutting down the other people who were not necessarily immediately visually super experts. So, so was some of the thinking reason. behind this that sometimes a dumb question is really, really smart? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. In <laughs> fact, uh, you know, there's that old saw that there's no such thing as a stupid question. Um, and so people say that in a facile way, just to make other people feel like they could ask questions, um, mm -hmm. but not with any meat behind it. But truly, if a person asks a question, then you know for sure they're not the only person on earth who's asking that question. And so maybe the result that needs to happen is education so that they know there is an answer already. Or maybe the result that needs to happen is a recognition by the experts that actually there isn't really an answer yet. And so either way, they're very, very excellent guiding uh, things for the whole conversation. This actually gives like a very interesting view into your mindset which is that you're really looking at interactions with humans and then thinking about results rather than looking to, in the crudest terms, separate the sheep from the goats, which has often been uh, a winnowing process in science of separating out the people who don't get to talk in a sense. Right. That's um, right. And so this is much more about using every bit of information to structure some set of results that you might deliver or, or act upon. That's so right. It's, it's the fundamental belief that I have that science and engineering is in service of all humanity. It's not in service of a tiny club of your, of your closest peers who could recognize or contest what you've discovered. Mm -hmm. uh, that is not a sufficient use of our time and resources. It's really in service of all of humanity. And so let's involve everyone in thinking about what's important and feeling like they're a part of the conversation. Now, 
very, very important distinction is, is not getting rid of the idea of an expert. It's not downplaying in any way the importance of a deeply rigorous education and an absolutely unflagging determination to find something that is truth and not just guided by your own biases. You have to have that. You need to have disciplinary expertise of the deepest variety. Um, but the thing that's different that I'm claiming and that others are doing as well is that we can bring those disciplinary experts together in groups of people who include non-disciplinary experts and find directions that are even more important for all of us. Mm -hmm. um, we have a lot of really amazing questions here that are starting to come in. So I'm gonna, I wanna move to questions first, but soon, but I want you to actually talk about what happens when people get interdisciplinary. How, then you set up these teams and then the teams work in a really different way. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Right, right. Um, let me start by saying that the, that the we give little bits of seed funding to these projects to kind of get them going. And, and of course, the traditional way that a seed funding pro um, uh, program works is that individual heroes come and say, here's my proposal for this brilliant idea. And then they get some money to take back and do with as they normally would. So that's not what we do. We do these big questions, so it's a group project. And then around each of the highest voted questions, we invite people to volunteer into teams, all happening in the same afternoon. This isn't a go home exercise. This is all mm -hmm. happening right in real time. And then they have a couple of different jobs to do while they're sitting together in the room for an hour. What are some milestones that we could reach in one year with a modest amount of funding that would get us on the track toward a solution for this very big question? Some of these questions are questions that would take a lifetime or several lifetimes to answer, but you can make a milestone for the year. So that's, first of all, you setting really specific outcomes and goals. That's right. And, uh, and then you have to identify the disciplines that are needed for your milestones that you don't yet have. So where, who are the empty seats at the table, so to speak? Then we pick a leader. There's no leader till then. And we pick a leader and we send them away and we give them about two weeks to come back with a budget and a team and the fleshed out milestones. And the budgets aren't big, you know, $10,000, $20,000 for a year. They don't even pay for a whole student, but if you have a leader, if you've picked a leader who can come back in two weeks with those things, then they're probably effective enough to go for the year. And then the big difference is we put them under professional project management. So we actually hold them to their guide, to their milestones and their goals and their budget. And we support them if they need extra help in different ways. That's not usual in academia. And I expected people to kind of run screaming, but it turned out people loved it. We've had very few teams disband and people really respond to having a question that's bigger than just themselves. And that's being on a motivated team and having the support of a structure. It turns out it really connects to something deeply human among us. And uh, it's been really successful. Wow. So, and, and if you want to read, to learn more about how successful it's been, you can read Lindy's article. Um, I wanna get into a few of these questions because they're, they're quite interesting. Um, one is, and I'm not sure whether you, well, I'll, I'll ask you the question. How would you compare this to what Google X does with their evaluation team for the Moonshot projects? Do you know what that's? I think that's pretty similar. I know a little bit about it, not a ton. And so, and so we are working really in parallel with some other kind of forward-looking organizational models. Um, and I think that there is, uh, there, there are definitely our similarities and I, I'm not able to pull up in my mind enough of the details. Uh, 
but I would say that the, that the big questions process that we've created, it's kind of a mix between um, the best, most fastest moving corporate skunk works kind of organizations and, and, a, and, a, and a NASA team kind of model. The thing that is um, especially fresh about it is that it's not usually done in a university research setting. Okay. And so, and so, uh, and so, bringing those ideas into this setting, I think, has a special meaning because it can help guide individual researchers in academia to um, a faster, more rewarding, better outcome. And another thing is, it also prepares people if they want to go work in industry. It's yes, it does. Yeah. yeah. So and I just want to. Yeah. Yeah, another, another really interesting question is how does the trend of industrial research pushing for shorter term results and impacts for corporate profits figure in this discussion? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, in, in a number of different ways. So of course, what we have today is we have uh, an intense network across sectors between universities and the private sector, corporations and government, government labs and administration. There are connections all the different ways, funding research, inspiring research, asking for research, supporting for original research ideas in all different directions, right? The, and teams forming across these boundaries. One of the issues that um, corporations often say that universities have when they try to team with universities, they say university researchers are not outcome oriented. You know, the scientists, we get the money in their lab to do a thing that we need an outcome and they see something shiny and they're doing something else and they don't have the outcome and the deadline's passed and nobody really cares because they're off doing their other thing. Um, and that's very frustrating for corporate America. And so one thing that this model does is it does prep teams that want to partner with corporations to be ready for that kind of structure. So that's a positive thing. Here's the, you know, the, the care we have to take is Frankly, my personal point of view is that we absolutely cannot have all of our research be just use inspired. We need fundamental curiosity driven research also. And one of the ways that people say, usually justify the need for fundamental curiosity driven uh, research is that you never know what outcome is going to be important for society later. You know, you're mm -hmm. going to discover some theory and it turns out it's the semiconductor. And, but I don't think we even need our research findings to be just about corporate profits and a new product that moves our technology forward. Just learning about our place in the universe is something that humans need to do more of. We need to put ourselves in our mental perspective that we live on a planet and that we have um, this relationship to the universe. And fundamental research does that. It's part of what makes us civilized. And so I don't want people to misunderstand the idea that this kind of process might be driving simply for commercial products. It's absolutely not true. It's any kind of big question that you're asking, not just ones that, that uh, sync us up with the corporate world. Okay. Um, another question that sort of, of, of looks at this is, um, how much of the challenge is attributable to the lack of funding and resources, resources for basic research? And how does the overproduction of PhDs in academia contribute to the issue? And I think they're talking about the, the hero science as a, as a problem. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And, and it's something that comes up an awful lot. 
we do compete fiercely for the money to do research. First of all, research is very expensive and not just paying people, but running expensive instruments and keeping labs going and buying the equipment that you need and traveling, frankly, all these things add up. And uh, federal grant programs, for example, some of them have a lower than 15% success rate. So maybe you have to submit seven or eight proposals in order to get one funded. And these proposals are hard to write. So there's, there's a deep competition for, for winning resources. And frankly, it helps if your name is known in your field, if you're recognized as a leader or you come from a, a university that is recognized for its excellence, I think in, I hope not consciously, but I think unconsciously reviewers do give you a little bit of a pass and make it a little bit easier to win. So this is unfortunate and it absolutely does, uh, this, this, that kind of competition matters. Um, the other part of it is this idea that there's an overproduction of PhD. So we're, we're, we're producing too many graduate students. We're training up to be super experts in their subdisciplines, and then they can't get faculty jobs because there just aren't that many. I, I think that that's a red herring. I think we're really looking at that one backwards because frankly, the things you learn during a PhD are very precious things to learn. You learn how to be an independent thinker. You learn to know when an answer is right or not right and how to judge that. You learn to recognize when something is unsolved and then go solve it. And let me just dig into that for a second because it's a kind of a superpower that I want us all to have. And we're working on this very hard, both in our education and also with our tech startup Beagle Learning. We're really trying to do this. Um, all of us are very good about complaining things about things that are wrong in our lives. Fewer of us are good at thinking about turning that complaint into a well-posed problem that could then be solved. And even fewer of us are good at going and solving that problem. But that is what a PhD trains you to do. Recognize a problem, pose it, and solve it. And so that's a superpower. That's something that every human should have. And PhD students should have that when they finish their degrees. So why do we think they should only go be faculty? Shouldn't they be mayors? Shouldn't they run corporations? Shouldn't they be in Congress? Shouldn't they be doing everything? Because that kind of training, I don't mean to the exclusion of other people, I just mean that every kind of job should be available for someone with a PhD who wants to have it because they have skills to bring that we all need. And so I think that what we need to do is value our PhDs to go into every job, not only value them when they go into academia. It's interesting because I, I think the numbers right now for people with science PhDs or something like, uh, or postdocs are that 86% of them will not get a tenure track position. And because we're so focused on this hero model and on becoming a hero yourself, we don't really acknowledge like, hey, we just actually created, you know, nine out of 10 of them are, could be doing something amazing. Um, but that's kind of how we need to it's so important. And the faculty member, you know, the true hero faculty member, we're brought up to think we are a success if our students end up at top ranked universities. And then we list them on our, on our, on our CV, you know, so-and-so my student is now a professor at whatnot. And if you have a student who then dropped out of academia and went to do something else, they don't even appear on your CV. So what's the message to the student who's just spent five or seven years of their lives becoming a top expert in the world on their topic? Their thought and sometimes feel that they have failed if they don't get a faculty position. That's what needs to change. We need to value and support them to go in all directions and never have someone who succeeded in doing that task feel like a failure. That is a crime. 
on that note, let me give you another question. <laughs> I stopped too suddenly. <laughs> I hope some people who are postdocs are listening to this. This is kind of, this is very inspiring. Um, so does the focus on bigger questions lead to unfunded work that on a bare bones budget, people feel the need to come in on the weekend or stay late despite not having enough funding? You know, what is the culture like in these, you know, in the interplanetary initiatives group work? Yeah, this is really important and something we've become quite aware of and something that we're working on. We don't have all the answers yet, but we're totally working on this problem. One thing we have discovered is that um, because we have this kind of informal motto that everyone is invited all the time, uh, we ended up naturally with group leaders, project leaders who were um, staff instead of faculty or graduate students or postdocs. And those people, the staff, the graduate students, the postdocs need to have their direct reports permission to spend time on this other project. Now, when that happens, it's okay because it's paid for, it's a part of now their regular paid job. But in the cases that that's not the case, um, we really have to be careful that people are not uh, spending time or feeling the pressure to spend time in an unpaid way working on the project. And so um, what we try to do is negotiate a few hours for them and then get undergraduate interns to work on things. Or ideally, you know, what we're finding is it really is helpful to have a faculty member in charge because the faculty member's time is entirely their own. And if they want to spend a part of it working on this other research project a couple hours a week, that falls within their regular university tasks for the most part. And so then what we're trying to do is very rapidly help them to take their preliminary results and go get outside funding. Um, because that's the step where then they can pay a whole graduate student or bring on a staff member, um, pay a part of their summer salary, and the, you know, the money goes um, higher. And, and we've had so far um, an eight times return on investment. So the seed money that we send out, those teams have brought in follow-on funds from much bigger sources in, in the amount of eight times as much money as we've paid out. Um, and so in some cases, the teams have worked out great that way and nobody has been overstressed or asked to do things that they're not being paid for or feel at all you know, equivocal about. And in other cases, we've had to do some problem solving. So that is definitely something to keep the eye on closely. And do you have sort of, you have a pretty open discussion of that? I mean, because I've seen, obviously, many academics on Twitter, they talk about how they're expected to be in the lab over the weekend. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it seems like it's an unspoken rule is that you kind of need to show up. And so do you talk about how, whether people are working too much? We do increasingly, we suddenly became aware that that we were having these situations where it wasn't totally fair and people were, you know, going above and beyond, especially staff members. And, uh, and so as soon as we became aware of that, we started the conversation and our conversations include HR and they include the members of the team and, and ourselves trying to find the right solution. Um, you know, the thing about faculty members and graduate students working on the weekends and working at night, um, I have a bunch of reactions to that. Uh, one is that, you know, I mean, my gosh, the building I worked in for many, many years at MIT as a student and later as a faculty member, there was this joke that if all the lights ever went off, the world would end because there was always <laughs> someone working in that building with the lights on day or night, you know, Christmas, whatever. Um, and, and it's always said with a bit of a sense of pride, you know, we work so hard. 
And I know there's a huge pushback against the sense that it, you should be proud of working hard. You know, we need instead to let people take their time off. But I feel two ways about that. I feel like it should be the individual's choice, not the press of the organization. I don't think you should ever be required to work more than a regular working week. But on the other hand, in my own life, I feel that it's been a huge blessing to work hard, that it's a blessing to have something to work hard on rather than to not have something to work hard on. To me, that would be emotionally devastating. So I love it when the project I'm working on engages me joyfully so intensely that I want to work on it on the weekend. Like to me, that's kind of heaven. And so is there a way to figure out a culture where you're not required to work extra hours, but you're also not punished if you choose to work extra hours? That'd be kind of great. I don't have the answer, but it's an idea. I think it really speaks to how this is a moment when amid COVID-19 and, and uh, I mean, uh, yeah, amid COVID, amid all these other challenges, amid the, the sort of fractures that have been seen in the research um, community that a lot of things are being reconsidered. And yeah. when you're reconsidering things, you're in an uncomfortable space because there's old meanings and there's new meanings wow. and there's evolving meanings and all of this sort of stuff. It's really interesting. Um, we're sort of coming to the time when we need to wrap up. And I just, I wanted to ask you one last question, which is that, you know, you actually are, a, you know, you, you are in the hero position. Um, <laughs> and what has opening up your labs, your, um, your way of working, how, what is it like to stand in front of a bunch of people and, um, and ask them for their ideas? Has that changed? Oh. You know, has, is it nice not to be the hero? I, I don't know. It makes me so happy, actually. And it's, I'm, I'm very, very uncomfortable when, when people make it all about me. I'm so uncomfortable. You know, this is Lindy, the PI, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, it's about the, it's not like, it's not like I physically am building the spacecraft. It's not like I physically did the work that the students were working with me did. That's their work. It's about the team. And so a question I'm constantly thinking about is, how can I use being a kind of a figurehead in some cases to do good um, and not become that kind of hero? And so, so one thing that, that we talk about a lot is uh, trying never to say, you know, so-and-so is my student, like I own them, they're my student. I really try to say, and I feel in my heart, we are working together on a project. And, uh, and Psyche is not my mission. Psyche is the mission that belongs not just to the 800 people who are working on it, but frankly, to all the taxpayers of our country and to all of humankind, because we're going to go look at an asteroid together as humanity. And so I love that. And it's, it's great for a number of reasons, um, partly because it gives me a chance to invite more voices to be heard and to see people experience their jobs and their and their um, and their hobbies with more joy um, and frankly in a very high stress very high risk environment like spaceflight it allows me to share the risk if I don't keep secrets to myself if I'm as transparent as possible about both our successes and our challenges with everyone who's involved up through NASA headquarters then what we end up with is a whole group of people who are working together for a positive outcome instead of an adversarial thing where I'm trying to keep the knowledge and the glory for myself. That's a very high risk thing to do. It's so much better for the outcome and for every individual if we do it together as a team with nobody standing up and saying it's all about me. Well, this has been really 
inspiring, thank you. Um, I think it's really inspiring to think about the sort of big, huge questions that we need to start asking society and science um, of, of how we get from here to the future in the way that we want. Um, and so it's really been wonderful to talk with you today about this different way of working. Um, and thank you for sharing your insights. And to everyone listening, thank you for tuning in and asking all of these excellent questions. Please visit Zocalo's website, zocalopublicsquare.org for a summary of this talk, brief interviews with both of us, and many other uh, articles and events. And you can also visit Issues in Science and Technology where you can read Lindy's essay called Time to Say Goodbye to Our Heroes. And thank you again, and I hope you have a lovely afternoon. Thank you, Lisa. It's been wonderful. I really appreciate you, you. It's been a great conversation. Yeah.